Hello, uh, good morning. Um, uh, we have a panel here, an expert panel today to discuss uh, uh, clean air and uh, um, very many pertaining questions. Uh, the expert panel uh, uh, comprises of uh, myself <laughs> uh, as chair, if you like, uh, uh, giving the questions. Uh, Simon Burkett from Camping Clean Air London. Yeah. Hello. Yes. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for including me. And uh, I'll ask you all to introduce yourselves after a few moments. Um, Dr. Jonathan Gorn, um, uh, Bristol University and ISTR chairman. Um, yeah, independent biosafety consultant and Sorry. chair of the ISTR executive committee. Yeah. Wrong straight away. Sorry about that. Uh, Atsi uh, Bostra, vice president of Riva. Um, and uh, we're very glad to have a European-wide perspective on this. And uh, Tobias Zimmer, uh, Vice President Global Products uh, and Management uh, from Camphill. So maybe I could start with you, Simon, if you could spend a minute just to tell me a little bit about your um, activities and campaigning for clean air in London. Uh, thank you, Peter. Uh, so for the last 15 years, I have been running Clean Air in London, which I established. And uh, we campaign for uh, full compliance um, with World Health Organization guidelines for air quality throughout London and elsewhere. And for four years, um, between 2015 and 2019, I was the air pollution stakeholder on the top steering group for UN Environment's uh, sixth Global Environment Outlook, which was their most comprehensive report on the environment since 2012. Thank you. And uh, over to you, Jonathan, if you could give a, a quick background. Yeah, so um, um, originally I was a research virologist. Um, I have a PhD in virology. Um, I've since uh, worked in um, uh, government uh, healthcare and um, academic laboratories. Um, I'm now um, a biosafety expert. I'm a former HSE inspector of biological agents and a former university biological safety officer. Um, I'm uh also chair of the istr executive a chair elect of the istr executive committee um and our members are um experts in uh safety and technology and research and um, many of them are biosafety specialists as well and we have been using uh, ventilation and filtration to control um airborne um pathogens for many decades Thank you very much. Uh, over to you, Atsi, if you could give me a, or give us a bit of detail about your life activities. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about the cat on the background, but I feel bad to chase it away, so I'll, I'll keep it there. <laughs> um, I'm a Vice President of Riva, the European Federation of Heating, Ventilation and Air Conditioning Associations, like SIPSI actually is connected to Riva. And um, my day job is uh, I'm, I'm a consultant. I, I run an eight-person consultancy company specialised in indoor air quality and thermal environment in uh, from The Hague, the Netherlands. And uh, next week, actually, I start two days a week at the Delft University as the chair of Building Services Innovation. Uh, and uh, in the past, I've been uh, quite active within ESIAC, the International Society for Indoor Air Quality. So I have a link there too. Oh, that's very good. And finally, uh, Tobias. Yes, thank Can you, you Peter. Yeah, I can hear. Um, I'm uh, Tobias Simmer. I'm a Vice President, Global Product Management and International Standards at Campbell, and I work for Campbell now for 12 years 
In, the, in my role, I'm strongly involved in European association work, being at um, Eurovent, Avia, Reva, but also in international standards, or both on ISO level and EN level. Of course, with a strong focus on air filtration, but also standards related directly to ventilation more in general. Thank you very much, Tobias. Uh, I might just throw in my two pennies. I've been in air filtration for um, about uh, 30 years, uh, about half, well, just over half that time with Camphill. Uh, and uh, I've also been in the, the fan industry and uh, manufacturing air conditioning, air handling units. Uh, and so I've had a wide spread of experience uh, over many years. And uh, uh, I'm very much interested in air quality, technical standards, and effective solutions, which, uh, of course, being from my background, would include air filtration, although there are many other technologies around at the moment. And I guess um, looking at the questions, I need to thank everybody who's registered, shown interest, and given us so many good questions. And we'll do our very best to get through as many of them as we can today. And uh, um, uh, I'm looking at uh, others that are starting to come in as well. So please feel free uh, during the course of the conversation if you wish to add to the list of questions. Uh, so uh, what we really need to be doing, I guess, is, is looking at um, the background to some extent. I think a lot of the concern regarding air quality and indoor air quality today is reflected in the uh, uh, rise of the COVID-19 infection risk, particularly in, in indoor spaces in buildings. Uh, and that is where um, uh, the risk to health is seen. And uh, um, over uh, the period, it has uh, seen that uh, a lot of the focus is uh, uh, being starting to be placed in airborne um, droplet aerosol particles. Uh, uh, and uh, I guess uh, um, that alongside the outdoor air pollution with uh, uh, fine particles there coming in through supply, um, it seems as though fine particles are very much a focus for attention in terms of uh, these particular problems. Uh, maybe um, I could start with uh, uh, Jonathan uh, Gorn just to give us sort of feel for how he thinks about uh, uh, airborne transmission mission at the moment and how that is uh, uh, developing uh, uh, and what he could uh, suggest um, we might be looking at in terms of uh, um, a means of control, if you like, uh, and reducing risk. <clears throat> yeah, sure. So I think one of the things we have to remember is that um, the transmission of viruses is a very complicated um, uh, phenomenon. Um, what you see with different viruses is, is different types of transmission, um, some of which have more than one. So COVID, the, the virus that causes COVID-19 is probably trans transmitted in multiple ways. I think it's becoming more and more clear that actually this airborne um, transmission route is probably the predominant one, which means this is about um, and what you tend to see, sorry, is that you tend to see that people that contract, um, that are infected with uh, the virus are people that have been in close contact. Um, and so within, usually within uh, within a metre or certainly within two metres of somebody who is um, uh, infectious, um, very often that means that they've got symptoms. Um, and it looks like that there is, you know, an airborne component. So um, people are expelling virus in um, airborne uh, droplets and breathing them in. 
Um, now, one of the things you do see, as I say, is that generally speaking, what we can see is that people tend to have to be within two metres. So that's why we have the social distancing rules. Um, but obviously, you know, we, we are, you know, there is, uh, uh, is airborne virus in the air. So therefore, there is, you know, definitely a role to play f in using um, uh, ventilation um to control the spread of virus um and uh we've been uh in the biosafety community obviously working in laboratories um and um, high containment facilities that you would use if you were doing research onto something like SARS-CoV-2 um we we have been using you know ventilation um to control and it's the the the, the processes are well we we move the, uh, the the air in a particular direction so it's away from um the breathing zone and um, we then filter that air so that the air that comes out is is therefore clean um and there's also the contact transmission so it's um which is um picking up virus um from surfaces um so it's, you know, there so are many things to think about yeah, sounds like quite a complicated picture then. Um, uh, I just wondered actually um, uh, whether I could uh, uh, start to look at the possible um, um, guidance that's been uh, made available about this. Um, um, we've had the World Health Organization recently bring out um, uh, a, a guide um, uh, with ventilation in mind. Um, I was wondering uh, um, if I could ask Tobias about this and the uh, air filters that... Uh, uh, might be uh, uh, focused on in that sort of situation. Yeah, it's uh, a little difficult to answer here because on the one side, it's great that the WHO addresses the topic of indoor air quality and the need for improved filtration. On the other side, you might debate if the level is actually high enough that's recommended. And secondly, there's a few issues when it comes to up-to-date Euro uh, European regulations. So it's partly referring to an outdated standard and it's and also the level of recommendation. So recommending uh, a MRF uh, 14 or how they call it, F8 or EPM 170 is maybe a little too low. It's definitely better than nothing. But uh, if you look at other recommendations, like for instance from Riva, you see higher recommendations for that right. situation. Maybe I could bring in uh, Atsi about that to talk about Riva and uh, the guidance that's currently there. I believe it's been modified several times, about four times uh, uh, to my last count. Is that uh, likely to still be uh, changing as time goes by or uh, are we getting close to a, a working solution, if you like, on that? I mean, the, the, the insight about the virus changes over time. So uh, actually, I think it's a good thing that we change it every two or three months because we try to to to, to tune in with the latest insights. And, and in remembrance, we were uh, the first version was from beginning of April. So we were at, at the start, we, we thought it was important to be fast because so people, building managers got some some input. Uh, we, we help them actually to decide what to do with existing uh, HVAC systems. So that was a priority at the time. And actually this week we had another meeting about a few little things, not, not major changes that we think should be changed and should be put in the fifth version. So it's not like we don't know what we want to do. Like every two or three months we update it in relation to the latest insights or maybe practical questions we got uh, that were not clear to each other. Um, 
Having said this, one general remark is we have from the start we've been very specific about that the guidance we give, it gives uh, it, it, it talks about ventilation, about operable windows, about air filtration, so several uh, building surface system related aspects. But in the introduction, we stayed very clear, and Jonathan was referring to that too, that if you want to fight COVID, you have to look at several things, at, at hand hygiene, keeping distance, um, and also uh, on the air quality ventilation side. So I, I would like to emphasize that we don't think that if you do only things on the side of ventilation, air filtration, that you're safe. We strongly believe that if you do only things on the, on the side of just washing hands and, and keeping a distance, so you do have to do the mix. And you see that in Germany, for example, they have this approach called AHAL. So uh, uh, keep a distance, wash your hands, use your Altax mask, uh, use your masks, and uh, make sure there's Luftung, there's ventilation. And I think that, that summarizes it uh, very well. Yeah, I think can that's I make a, a point. Yeah, can I was just I going to come to you, Simon. Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. about uh, what's available uh, out there to alert the general public and the importance of air quality and the latest yeah. UK guidance. Yeah, I, th I think if I can just sort of step back, um, um, make a couple of points. So first, I think look, I think the uh, most important thing is uh, with COVID is that the science is saying, and Jonathan confirms, and we all know. Um, that um, COVID can be transmitted through the air. Uh, what we also know is that people like the World Health Organization and Reva and many others are putting guidance out there um, about how to actually tackle COVID and air pollution in the air. Um, I think the, the only problem that we've identified is the fact that an, a number of these guides don't include the latest um, international or European standards. Uh, when they refer to things. So we just need to do that one simple thing, which is just make sure that the guidance uh, reflects the, the latest international standards. So if I can uh, answer your question, but just put uh, make a comment first, um, which is just um, uh, for the sake of good order, um, Camphill has been a uh, sponsor um, uh, of Clean Air in London for 10 years. Camphill sponsored our campaign uh, to build public understanding of indoor air quality. It uh, doesn't uh, put any obligations, there are no incentives on us to promote products, uh, but I'm very happy to say that they're the most wonderful group of people and I like their products, uh, but I'm not uh, required to say that. So uh, they've been a great sponsor of our campaign. Uh, in terms of the information that's out there, uh, th there are several different things. So the first is that there are World Health Organization air quality guidelines. Uh, they were published, uh, they're dated 2005, they're actually published in 2006, and they set standards for uh, what we call short-term um, exposure to air pollution and long-term, which is typically, well, it's always uh, an average of one year. Uh, those guidelines are, have been out there. Um, there is no safe level uh, that the scientists have identified for exposure to particles, uh, the PM1, PM2.5, which is particles as a lump of, of everything. Um, uh, I don't quite know, I don't have inside information, but uh, it's uh, expected that those World Health Organization guidelines will be updated as soon as May or June this year. And that, that will really shake up um, the air pollution world because uh, again, I don't have inside information, but I think some of those standards, they may not be halved, as in going from 10 to 5 or 40 to 20, but they could come down a long way. So I think it will give people quite a shock about how many people are exposed um, uh, to health problems. 
So there are the, the um, health guidance uh, guidelines out there. Um, you can also look at um, monitors. There are real-time monitors, and I will put some links in the chat window, uh, which uh, from scientists and from the government, which show day-to-day -day levels of pollution, uh, either the, for short-term or long-term exposure. Uh, there's also modeling uh, available, which shows you, even down to a 20-square-meter grid, what air pollution looks like um, uh, around a building or um, uh, in the street. Uh, and you can do your own uh, monitoring as well. Um, there's a, uh, I'll put some links, as, as I say, in the chat window. Um, but uh, I think the, the main thing is that there is a lot of information out there. Uh, and I would point to one specific bit of guidance which is the World Health Organization Housing and Health Guidelines. And I'll just read one sentence from that, which is that in the absence of updated or indoor specific guideline values, the air quality guidelines for outdoor or ambient air quality are considered applicable for indoor air um, exposure as well. So the key message there is, guess what? Um, the, the health standards outside really should be the same as the health standards inside unless there's specific guidance otherwise. Thank you very much indeed. That sounds a very good uh, piece of uh, information to bear in mind, um, that those uh, uh, guidelines given by the WHO are applicable wherever you're breathing the air, whether it be outside, whether it be inside a building. Uh, we all have the same lungs. We're all breathing the same air uh, and the same uh, um, uh, guidance. It makes sense. Yeah, 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 it, yeah. It's so so obvious that um, um, you, you think it's not necessary to say, but uh, uh, unfortunately, it is. Uh, uh, it needs to be made very clear. Uh, thank you very much for that. Um, maybe I could come back to you again, Tobias, uh, quickly about um, um, air filtration standards, because um, it might be handy to just mention what they are, the current particle filter standard, HEPA filter standard, and molecular filter standard. Uh, and... Uh, um, so that people are aware, because um, there are some old yeah. ones out there which have been around. Um, True, there is some confusion right now in the market, especially when it comes to the HVAC filters, because in Europe we used to have the EN779 for the general ventilation filters, but that standard has been actually replaced in Europe in 2018, so three years in the past by a global standard, the ISO 16890, which is since summer 2018, the valid standard in Europe for that. And the big upside of this new standard is that it replaces an old terminology, which was only understandable for experts, saying F7, F8, F9 to a filter, which doesn't tell anyone really what it does, hmm? <laughs> except you're a filter expert. <laughs> With something that's understandable. An F7 filter is now an EPM1 60% filter, or a minimum an EPM1 50%. What means is PM1, Tobias? What PM1 is PM1? is particulate matter below one micrometer, and that filter and why, why is take that so important? Why is that so important, Tobias? Yes, it's... I will elaborate on that, because that's what okay. uh, Simon right. just mentioned. The penetration of particulate matter, PM1, so particles below one micrometer, or PM2.5, below 2.5 micrometers, is the actual expo critical exposure you get in the, um, as a human. And there is a lot of evidence, scientific evidence, that the smaller the particles get, the more critical they are to human health. 
So that's why for the protection of humans, we only look at PM1 or even at HEPA filters at even smaller particles. And that's why and it's a big difference if you say, I need a PF7 filter, because no one knows why, or you say, I need a PM1 60% filter, which simply says it takes out 60% of the PM1 that goes through that filter. That's a very simple calculation that anyone will understand. And you can much more have a much more intelligent discussion about should your supply air be filtered PM1 60% or PM1 80% than F7 or F9, which is only something for an expert. And we can easily see that obviously if we talk about a city like London, where you have a high particulate air uh, pollution outside, obviously your supply air should be at least reduced by 80% before it gets in the room. Otherwise, you have the indoor air pollution in the room, you know, the outdoor air pollution in the room, because it will actually accumulate in the room. So that's why this standard is a big step forward. And whenever you think of protecting people, the PM1 is actually the right level. And that applies even outside the COVID time. But if we look at now at, COVID, uh, at the COVID situation, we all know that the critical uh, transmission via um, aerosols are quite small particles that are in the air. So if we have a high efficiency on small particles, we know the efficiency on the bigger particles will be even higher. So then you can estimate some safety level differently than if you would speak about PM10, for instance. Then you really don't know much about efficiency against the virus. Eh? So we've got far, ISO 16890 then we've for part, particle filters for general HVAC use. Um, for HEPA filters, the standard is... Yeah, for HEPA filters, we have another standard, the EN1822, which is even more precise. And then we're really getting more into the COVID situation or into clean room environments, because these filters are measured at the so-called MPPS. Now we're getting technical. It's the most penetrating particle size. <laughs> so you actually measure a wide range of particles up to very small ones and you find the minimum of the curve and you rate the filter at its minimum efficiency so it's so worst possible sure, case then worst possible case and then you know no matter what particle size you have you will have at least this efficiency and if you look for instance at a uh, what's very often mentioned in the guidelines an h13 or h14 filter an H13 will have a guaranteed efficiency in worst case at the most penetrating particle size of 99.95%. And the H14 even won nine more, 99.995%. Maybe so I could bring in... Yes, absolutely. Please, uh, Jonathan. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, looks like you've got a comment there. <coughs> yes, well, yeah, I mean, I, th I think, you know, I mean, just to, to, to sort of uh, reinforce what Tobias is saying, really, I mean, we've, so for example, we've been um, handling um, viruses in, in laboratories for many, many years. Um, one of the, in the high containment laboratories and even in the lower containment laboratories, uh, we use um, HEPA filtration um, to clean up air. Um, where we, we're handling virus in at levels that are way, way, way in excess of anything that you would ever encounter um, in an office environment because somebody is um, expelling virus because we're because we're growing it in laboratories. <laughs> we're doing <laughs> to create aerosol, and you know, yeah. we're, and 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 everything from 
uh, coronavirus to the Ebola virus to, you know, to influenza, <laughs> whatever types of viruses that we can grow, we will grow them and we use HEPA filtration. The standard, even at the highest containment, uh, in the highest containment facilities, the standard is H14. Um, and we are very, very confident that an H14 filter, because, you know, we, we, we've not seen, you know, laboratory um, mediated infections um, um if things are handled correctly and and the air is filtered correctly, we're very very confident that an H14 filter will pull out virus um, in high quantities. <laughs> so that you've got complete confidence that an H14 EN1822 HEPA filter will protect you and protect anybody involved in the research facility um, against uh, yes, exposure to that. A lot virus. of the evidence for that will come from the lower containment laboratories. Um, in, because, you know, so, so for example, what we would term containment level two, which is where you would handle most strains of influenza, for example, very often they will be handled in a recirculating unit um, that you that the, completely relies on filtration um, to, um, to protect the people in the room. Um, and, you know, we don't see laboratory acquired infections of influenza in those, in those circumstances. Yeah, well, sound, that's good to hear from uh, an expert because uh, I guess the COVID-19 virus particles are, you know, ranging. I don't know what you would uh, call the size of the virus itself, but uh, typically, I don't know, is it 0.12, or The virus itself is obviously very, very small, but we have to remember that it's not the virus size that's important. It's the it's the aerosol particle that it's contained in that's important. Once one, I mean, viruses like coronavirus are very, very susceptible to drying out. So once, you know, once it's dried out, it becomes non-viable and won't infect you, um, which is one of the reasons why actually it's probably mostly over two meters is that actually you've got you've got a complicated situation there. So I'm expelling virus. You know, the further away it gets, the more dilute it gets, the more the ventilation system is going to affect it. But it's also drying out. It's being it's being inactivated by UV. So, you know, the viability is going down the further away from me it gets as well. So it's those it's the air, it's the aerosol liquid particles that are important. Those are the things that need to be caught, not necessarily the the yeah. virus itself. Uh, and the bigger particles, of course, uh, have gravity to pull them down to ground or surfaces pretty quickly, don't they? I think yeah. once you go over about 10 microns, you're talking matter they fall of minutes. Out quicker, yeah. yeah. So, can I, the smaller. Can I give a short comment yeah, about that? Please, Hatsi. We've had a big discussion about this in the Netherlands because it looks like all the medical people, at least here in the Netherlands, they're convinced that anything bigger than five microns will fall within one meter to the floor. If yeah. you do talk to people who are specialized in, for example, uh, airplane environments or people from University of Amsterdam or University of, Ut uh, of, of Twente who are specialized in aerosols, they tell me, well, actually, it depends a little bit on the, on the kind of currents you have in a room, depending upon the ventilation system. But easily, particles as big as 30, 40, 50 micrograms, they can still pass this one and a half meter uh, distance. So this whole thinking that anything bigger than five micrograms falls on the floor is 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 a big mistake. That's basically what they tell me. Well, it, it's it's wrong. Yeah. So yeah. So no, we it's, we get episodes yeah. where you know air pollution comes in from um, you know hundreds of miles. Yeah. So you're right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Jonathan. Yeah, it, it, it's an important point that's being made there um, because one of the one of the issues here is obviously you know if in, in an ambient room 
you know, you would expect particles to fall out and they will fall out at different rates depending on how big they are. One of the things that needs to be borne in mind is that a virus, as I've been explaining, is that actually because it loses viability as it goes away, um, you know, a virus um, uh, and it's infectious at the point where you come into contact with it, we've got to be very careful that we don't mix up what sort of particulate, how we would control particulate pollutants or a cloud of toxic gas with infectious virus. Um, Actually makes a very important point, and that is actually the air current that's carrying it becomes quite important because if if, if the air gets taken from me to you, you get exposed and you become infected even before it gets anywhere near a filter. So the important thing in terms of airflow is actually to take it away from uh, from people where they're going to breathe it in. So actually in an ideal scenario, you would use something like a clean room scenario where you would pull it away to the floor or pull it straight up into the air to, because, you know, that by, by doing that, you um, you stop that infection chain and we need to we just need to bear in mind that actually you can't just dilute you've got to you've got to place the air as well as dilute it so that's what feeds the sort of mass outbreaks is it in concentrated uh, populated air spaces inside buildings where you get sort of restaurants or or theaters or choirs is another one where they've mentioned there's a problem uh, yeah. so obviously the 2 meter rule can break down in certain circumstances um, and one of those is if the air current is actually as, as, as intimated as if the air current carrying the air, it, that, that two meter rule will break down. If you're, you know, people that are singing might well expel further, um, things like that. Um, and as I've said before, you know, the outbreak epidemiology, out, the, the, the kind of the features of an outbreak in a, in a given space are going to be complicated. It's not going to be all about airflow. It's not going to be all about distance. It's, you know, it's multifactorial. We've covered that already. Yeah. Um, but I think there is a hint from some of these outbreaks that have been looked at that that airflow has had an impact and that kind of two meter rule um, can break down because the because the air conditioning system or the ventilation system has carried the virus from one person directly to another. Presumably all infection has to come out of people, infected people, so uh, it will be projected into the air probably initially to some extent or off the Mm. touching of the person who's infected uh, and uh, deposit on surfaces which remain infected for an indefinite period. Um, yeah. Unless so you're growing it in a flask, Peter. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. So, so in, in your view, I mean, there are obviously a lot of industrial settings. Um, there was a recent uh, a case of a, a meat plant, for example, where uh, several hundred people were infected. Um, and uh, that was probably a mixture of, of the two types of transmission vectors. But... Um, um, I'm just wondering, in your view, presumably you would think the reduction in concentrations of these aerosols would, uh, to some extent, uh, uh, increase levels of safety in an airspace, but you have to be careful about how the air moves in the airspace so that the currents are controlled. Well, well, clearly, especially in a very confined space like a small office, I think you know that you know it'll it'll start to behave a little bit more like a cloud of toxic gas or particulate pollutant. In, in a situation like that, and obviously, especially if there's no one in there, um, you know, if someone has been in there and 
um, and they've been expelling virus, then to kind of, you know, to to dilute that virus away is a very effective way of um, of, of scrubbing it out of the air. <clears throat> it clearly has a role to play. Um, I think <clears throat> one of the issues that I just think we need to be careful of is that we don't just rely on dilution. Um, dilution is an important factor um, um, in certain circumstances, but we have to be very, very careful that we don't use ventilation to make it worse before we get rid of it out of the air. Okay, um, so opening windows might have a case, to, uh, a, you know, a role to play in some aspects, but maybe it's not, uh, and flooding the air through supply systems, ventilation systems, is probably not a very controlled approach in some respects then, is that it, the case? Yeah, and I, and I think it, certainly in older buildings where you can't control, you know, I think, I think we're thinking about, what, you know, very much got an eye on standards for new buildings here and how, you know, how we set buildings up. Um, for a variety of reasons, um, but one of them might be um, infection control. Um, what we've got to, um, we, we've just got to bear in mind that, you know, you know, diluting is better than not diluting. Um, but where we can control it, where we where we can really make a difference is if we is if we design the system so that actually we can break the chain of infection. Right. I'd like to come back to Adsy on this one. Yeah. And then Simon. I, th I think if you talk about so current, current direction is, is important. But you have to, to keep in mind that if you have a standard ventilation system in an office, for example, that comes from the ceiling, it always m works with mixing the air. So uh, if, especially if you're in, in a so smaller space, you kind of end up breathing all the same air. It doesn't matter if you're sitting in a corner or in the middle or whatever, unless you are sitting within like very close distance to the one that's breathing out the viruses. So um, this, I've, I've been in a lot of discussions with the Public Health Institute here in the Netherlands where, let me put it this way, they don't have too many people who know about uh, currents in spaces. Yeah. So I always tell all this and this person at the university who studied this for 20 or 30 years, but. Uh, but so uh, air current direction is, is, is a very important aspect. A very, very other important aspect is room size, because I've, I've, I've studied a couple of outbreaks with, uh, in churches, for example, or, and then often you see these are kind of small side rooms of churches where they did singing with just 20 people. And if you have a small space, which is now mediocre uh, uh, ventilated, that's much more dangerous than if you have a big air volume that's 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 not very well ventilated. So size really matters. Um, sorry for the. Uh, there's the a debate. There's a debate here, I guess, as well about um, principles of airflow in and air distribution. Um, a lot of people uh, using HEPA systems. Uh, um, uh, Jonathan's already mentioned uh, um, use clean room principles where you introduce the air from the top of the uh, room and yeah. bring it down to low level to extract or recirculate, um, yeah. clean and recirculate. Uh, I guess that would be one approach. Uh, other people have other ideas. Um, what would you that's say to that? That's, that's a principle that works quite well. I, there's a company in the Netherlands that has made... Uh, like an additional system you can put in existing elevators that actually pushes the air from above to, to down. That works pretty well in not too high spaces, eh? like like in a clean room environment. But if uh, last weekend we were involved in, I don't know if you saw that on TV, but in Amsterdam we had this big dance event, 1,500 people. Uh, we were actually there to monitor the air quality, not me, but some of my colleagues. And this is a really big space, like 50,000 square uh, cubic meter or whatever. 
uh, then of course it's kind of impossible because actually the people that are standing there as a group, they all, all have this thermal plume, so air will go up, uh, especially when they start dancing. You, you get this, this force that yeah. goes down to above, and especially if you're in a group, all these little thermal plumes, they connect. So you have yeah. a really strong current that goes from below to up. So then in that situation, it's better to have displacement ventilation where you enter the air low and you have an exhaust system. And so it depends very much on the room size, on the, the activity in the room, what principle yeah. works best. I know the, the, the discussions, but... Uh, there are counter uh, arguments that say that uh, the infective plumes are projected when people breathe horizontally and uh, so they're dispersed throughout the airspace. So uh, you can have a, a, a quite a, an interesting debate about that. And I guess things like air monitoring, um, use of, uh, uh, you know, sort of data and, and modelling is important. But uh, in terms of cleaning the air and flushing the air, if you like, um, uh, I think there's a role to play for, you know, sort of general HVAC systems, uh, improved ventilation, and there was a guidance document from the ASHRAE uh, Epidemic Task Force that came out a few weeks ago, core recommendations recommending uh, increased combination use of upgraded air filters, uh, sort of MERV 13, which would be about EPM 170% uh, for, uh, for recirculation use, uh, and uh, combined with air cleaners. Uh, with effective use of HEPA filtration, which I guess would be EN1822, HEPA's H14, that sort of thing. Um, I don't know if you've got anything to say on that sort of thing, Tobias, um, about the different guidance from different quarters. Yeah, and the, the change out uh, of filters. Yeah, the change out of filters, you mean in terms of lifetime or in terms of replacing due to COVID? I think... Um, there's a, a, an argument for energy for changing out of air filters, and there's an argument for minimizing infection for changing out of air filters. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's two very different yes. approaches. Well, let, let, let's stick with the COVID-19 uh, situation um, to start with. Yeah, actually, if, you're, if we're talking about supply air filters, there's yeah. no specific reason to upgrade them due to covid but there might be very well reasons to upgrade them due uh, related to the outdoor air pollution. Okay. So there is there is a guidance um, that can be quite generally used. That's uh, Eurovent 423, and we can expect a very similar guidance in the upcoming EN uh, revision of the EN 167983, where supply air and efficiency of supply air filters is recommended depending on the quality of the room. Of course. So is it really a healthcare facility? Is it an office or is it a place that's randomly used by people? And the second big factor is, of course, what's the outside air? Obviously, the filter requirement in the center of London is a different one than somewhere in North Sweden. Well, so uh, taking these two into getting that uh, into a correlation, there's a correlation between the supplier qualities required and the outdoor air quality existing in your place. And all of that, um, it gives kind of a matrix and proposing uh, a recommendation for the quality of the filters. So, for instance, for a place like uh, for an office in London, to say was a simple example, the recommendation would be at least EPM 180 as a filter system, plus adding gas filtration. And then you have a, a level that you can have at least an improved quality air quality in the room. 
While, of course, when you're back now in north of Sweden, probably 1 p.m. 1.50 filter will be more than enough. And there is no need for gas filtration because you might maximum smell the, smell the woods from the outside, which is not that <laughs> So it sounds like a local air monitoring is called for, really, so people know because these particles are invisible, aren't they? Um, so the only way of really knowing yes, is to uh, measure. Um, yes, of well, course. Uh, and the yeah, yeah. outdoor air quality is based on the mentioned WHO guidelines. So yeah. what uh, what should be the long what is the long term maximum that's acceptable and then there is a formula behind it how much does it need to be reduced for the different supplier classes. Simon, you look as though you need need to say something on this, particularly with regard to London, of course. Well, yes, <laughs> yes, uh, yes I, I, I need need Tobias's help in London. I think um, uh, I, I think the just to um, uh, yeah, I look at these things. Fairly simply, I think you know it's important to remember. I find people are very confused about air filtration, ventilation. You know, what is this? Does my air con air conditioner clean the air? And of course, it doesn't. So I think it's important to recognise that a building can have ventilation, air conditioning, or heat treatment, or air filtration, or air cleaning, um, or, or two of those or, or, you know, one, two or three of those. Um, so just because it has an air conditioning unit uh, doesn't mean it's um, uh, doing anything else. Uh, so that's important. Um, it's also exactly as Tobias said. I mean, we need to, to address in London um, the particle problem because there is no safe level of exposure to these particles. PM1, um, um, the sort of particles that Assay was talking about, but, you know, up to PM10, which are quite big. But we also have a massive nitrogen dioxide problem. It's come down a lot um, due to the, um, uh, the work by successive mayors. Um, uh, but we have a serious nitrogen dioxide problem from the diesel vehicles in London and also for, from a lot of gas combustion. Uh, so we do need to, to, to tackle both types of that air cleaning, uh, particles and gases um, in, in a city like London. Uh, and just please, just you know, there is a lot of information out there for people about, as I start, started by saying, you know, from official guidance in terms of um, air pollution levels outside buildings. Uh, but do bear in mind that we're going to have this quite dramatic intervention from the World Health Organization um, uh, in, in later, you know, before the summer, I think, and certainly before um, uh, the UN Climate Change Conference in November, um, which I think could reduce by a third or even as much as a half um, uh, the levels, um, uh, the guideline levels. And I think that's going to be really quite dramatic uh, and people will really start to think again um, about their exposure to air pollution. So this is a very timely conversation. Thank you. Right. So it sounds like we need to uh, look at the available up-to-date guidelines and standards uh, and make sure that uh, we follow a particular guidance. I, I'd like to come back to Tobias again because he mentioned uh, changing filters uh, to do with COVID, uh, which he gave an answer for on supply side. We didn't quite get the uh, answer on recirculation filters, which uh, Absolutely, I yeah. think I think uh, we could do with addressing uh, and maybe those recirculation filters uh, with the use of a recirculation damper could introduce air upstream of the supply side filtration. Um, but maybe that's a longer uh, um, discussion that we might totally be able to cover today. But the argument for changing filters due to energy and costs, maybe you could have a quick go at that one, Tobias. 
So you want to have the energy or the recirculation first? There was two different approaches. Yeah, I said uh, maybe recirculation, we need uh, more time, but uh, maybe you could cover the energy uh, and cost. From the, yeah, from the energy and cost perspective, there, there's actually two approaches how to change air filters. The one is uh, based on the on a final pressure drop, and the other one is based on a time. And if we look at that, the latest uh, standards that have been uh, published on that, on the energy efficient um, filter changing point is the EN 13053. That's a new regulation for energy efficient air handling units, where there is, um, where they follow the, the so-called, um, yeah, the, actually the, based on a pressure drop. So the condition based approach. Yeah. And the recommendation there is much stricter than what's used in most of the air handling units today. For instance, the, propo um, the proposed changeout point for a PM1 filter would be initial pressure drop of that filter plus 100 pascals or three times initial pascal, uh, the initial pressure drop, whatever is lower. Yeah. Okay. Which is much lower than what's used today. Today, it's very common to use um, an air filter on that of that filter class up to 300 pascals of pressure drop, which is, of course, a point you can change. Well, this is far away from being the energy optimized point. Right. So the reason for that being, of course, the energy consumption rises as the pressure drop rises. Um, yeah, significantly. Uh, yeah. And uh, you reach a point where the cost of a new air filter is significantly low compared to the energy consumption that would otherwise be incurred, the cost of it. So it's uh, Absolutely, because uh, that's, that's a point we always have to keep in mind. Unlike many other components in the ventilation system, an air filter, replacing an air filter is a relatively low cost activity, which actually will reduce the energy consumption significantly. So changing out an air filter earlier will save you much more than the air filter, including the work will cost. I see. Yeah. Simon, you've got a comment. Yeah, just I, I think that's uh, that that's great what uh, Tobias says. I think we do need to think about energy, but I think um, uh, I think facilities managers um, need to think about energy and the cleanliness of the air in buildings. So in a bit. I appreciate people have sort of been very focused on energy, but we do need to think about, you know, whether we are complying with the latest World Health Organization guidelines for air quality in buildings uh, and the latest standards. So it, one way of thinking about it is facilities managers need to be able to walk and chew gum, uh, and I'm sure they can. And it, it's about doing both those things, uh, I think, is, is is really important. So it's not complicated. We can all walk and chew gum. Uh, and, and that's what it's about. Let's deal with energy and let's keep our air clean. Thank you. Yeah. So it's two two approaches. Obviously, obviously with COVID nineteen, it's air quality, but we need to bear in mind uh, the current situation, where sustainability yeah, and, is a, a key point uh, as well. And the other thing I would say is that um, we do need to look at the the whole of the system because. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really um, pr pretty sort of, um, well, I, I'm a bit sort of shocked to share this with you, but I actually looked inside ducts on one occasion and there was an open cement bag in there. So um, there were air filters, but basically it was blowing air that some builder had left in a, a, a you know, a cement bag. 
um, through the air filtration system. Uh, so, you know, we do need to look at the filters. Uh, we need to check that the ducts are clean and that they're um, uh, cleaned, cleaned uh, regularly. So we need to look at the whole system and do it properly because I was really quite shocked when I saw that. Thank you. It sounds like uh, maintenance of HVAC systems is a key component in, in all this. So it's good design, good selection, good maintenance, uh, and uh, also air monitoring to check that we're actually getting delivery of what's required, clean air that's fit for people to breathe without risk exactly. to health. Exactly. Um, just give an example in relation to that, uh, because yeah. discussions, of course, you can come up with all kinds of ideas about how to design new buildings, but to operate existing buildings in an intelligent way, and personally, I think this is, generally speaking, looking very well also on the energy performance side, not just on the health side, as you, you should do both. Yeah. But during a pandemic, I've, I've been doing a couple of projects in nursing homes lately, and I think it's kind of obvious if you have a winter where there's a lot of influenza and or a lot of COVID, that at least during this specific winter, you decide to, if you have a demand control system, for example, that normally is kind of uh, limiting the amount of fresh air in like a communal uh, meeting room for, for these uh, elderly people, that at least this winter, you try to get the most out of your ventilation system, that you put your set points maybe at 600 ppm and uh, CO2 and not 1200. Yeah. This to us may be all quite logical, but I see a lot of buildings where people don't do this. They just have been trained for the last couple of years to only think about energy. Then we arrived there January this month, so the pandemic has been going on for nine or ten months already. And if I tell them, haven't you read the newspaper? Uh, haven't you read the, the, the TVVL? This is the, the Dutch uh, Riva uh, guidance about this. And, and to, to make things even worse, because people, of course, want to, to talk about complicated things and introducing filters or whatever. Actually, nursing homes is a, a good uh, place where you have a good chance to do uh, things with filters, but that's uh, another issue. But uh, lately, we were in a nursing home where the system was not working for a couple of weeks already. Nobody was noticing those really simple things. Um, mm. We, we were involved in some experiments with people, not the one in Amsterdam, where at the start of the event, the one operating the system put everything in, in full recirculation mode. And, and the idea was to keep it on for the whole session, which, of course, is very dangerous during this time. So just general awareness on how you are using your building service systems and how you should be or could be using it, looking at energy or looking at health and comfort or looking at both. There's still a lot of work to do there, I guess. I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that there have been many questions I've been trying to cover. Uh, I've had about 30 or 40 questions come through and uh, it would take the whole session to read them out. So uh, um, I've been trying to cover the gist of what they're saying in what we've been talking about. Uh, I've just had a, a, a question about molecular filtration uh, and energy consumption by that. We, we Tobias briefly mentioned uh, molecular filters. They're usually for, in city centres, removal of nitrogen dioxide. And uh, we can remember the recent problem, uh, the tragic case of Elika Sedebra, who uh, unfortunately uh, uh, died at the age of nine due to the uh, effects of uh, exposure to nitrogen dioxide in a city centre. And that would be one of the main sorts of uh, um, reasons for using molecular filtration in, for example, central London or other major cities uh, uh, across Europe. So um, it's important to bear in mind that whenever you design a filter system, that the energy consumption, which is 
in particular, the operating pressure drop is minimized and there are configurations of filters to do that. But also you need the capacity of the filter to make sure it lasts a reasonable length of time between change outs. So these are important characteristics of air filters. So that's my little two penis there. Um, I'm just wondering if we could quickly move on to one or two of the other questions. Um, uh, maybe uh, you could uh, uh, talk uh, a bit about this one, uh, uh, Jonathan. Uh, uh, how, um, how will the pandemic experience influence the future of biosafety regulation? Um, is that something you could give a quick answer to? <laughs> a bit general, perhaps. I'm, I'm not I'm not sure. Um, well, I guess it depends on what you mean by biosafety. Um, I think, you know, obviously, you know, um, um, where I'm from, biosafety is, you know, obviously um, uh, preventing people from um, infecting themselves whilst um, working in a laboratory on infectious agents. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of whether or not the pandemic will have um, a big impact on how that side of it is regulated. Um, I think there's there's definitely some questions over how we classify organisms because um, uh, obviously you know all all pathogens are given a, a hazard grouping which determines how you have to handle them in the laboratory. Um, so um, SARS-CoV-2 was um, uh, made a hazard group three, which means you have to use it in a high containment, containment level three laboratory, um, which obviously, you know, had the potential, certainly in the early early days, of, of slowing down research. Um, so I think there's 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 possibly some uh, some questions to be asked around that. Um, but I I don't I don't see the pandemic changing the biological safety aspects significantly obviously in terms of public health and how we apply um how we apply some of the principles that we are what that we have learned through biosafety or that we've learned through the pandemic um and applying that that knowledge and that information to improve making better buildings healthier buildings um and as I've said before, breaking chains of infection so that, you know, it's not just it's not just SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. You know, we're talking about influenza and the common cold and, and, and lost uh, lost work days because people are getting sick in buildings. Um, and, you know, it's not and it's not just infectious agents that's making people sick in buildings, as I'm sure, you know, people um, like Simon will attest to. You know, there are lots of things that are making people sick in buildings. Um, and we can we can apply, you know, I think it's it's time for for us all to come together and to think about, well, you know, what is what's what are the important things to consider? Um, a pandemic is, a we hope, a once in a lifetime um, or maybe twice in a lifetime um, occurrence. Um, uh, is it worth designing a building to reduce um, transmission of airborne viruses? Maybe it is. What is it more important to consider air pollution? Maybe it is. We need to work out what the priorities are and make sure that we design our buildings appropriately. I think you're right on that. We need to, um, if you like, uh, um, be optimistic, but also um, be well aware that this issue that we've got today might well uh, represent itself in the not too distant future. Uh, and we need to take all precautions. I think there's a, a good uh, scientific principle, the pre precautionary principle that we need to more widely adopt, I think. Uh, I don't know, Atsi, if you've got anything to say on, on uh, how Reva 
would see the situation in terms of maybe coming up with practical solutions, um, moving into the future with your guidance. Um, uh, certainly uh, with regard to air filtration, I think there's a, uh, a, a an increased level of debate that should take place um, uh, amongst the, all the other solution options that are being put forward at the moment. Um, um, how would you feel uh, um, uh, in your uh, organisation uh, these things can be uh, addressed moving forward? Yeah, maybe I just talked about awareness and uh, I don't want to feel to, to, to sound frustrated, but we all know this from if you if you do a design project and of course a lot of people connected to Riva have this experience too, then there's often a lot of attention to the, the visible part, what the building will end up like uh, looking and the entrance and uh, maybe square meters. And uh, I think a pandemic like this at least should result into um, putting uh, good building service systems on the agenda, good air quality, good indoor air quality on the agenda again. I'm not 100% convinced yet that maybe a lot of decision makers two years from now will have forgotten all about this uh, um, mm. because we are vaccinated as if there won't be any other diseases in the future. Anyhow, other diseases where ventilation and air cleaning will help. Um, so generally speaking, uh, we are trying to, um, to, 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 well, like I said, to create more awareness uh, about uh, indoor air quality, especially and, and, and of course, then uh, it's, it's a, there's a lot of material already. There are good uh, standards, guidelines, uh, SEN standards um, that tell you what to do if you want to reach a certain uh, level uh, of, of, of indoor air quality in relation to filtration, in relation to uh, uh, ventilation technologies. So it's not like we do have to do a lot of development. I think it's more uh, about putting it on the agenda, keeping it on the agenda and convincing people to also spend money on, on good indoor air quality and not just on how buildings look and maybe not just on the energy performance side. Yeah, that's good thoughts. Maybe, Simon, you've got something to add on um, uh, to this uh, uh, thread of conversation. I think it's extremely important that um, uh, we, we do learn from this pandemic. Um, uh, but but I, I think the two most important things to me is make sure always that um, uh, you ask um, what are the latest international and you know European and international ISO um, standards um, uh, for um, air filtration, energy, um, uh, and so on, uh, and. The, the second thing is um, it will be extremely important, in fact, critical um, that all of that guidance is updated when these new World Health Organization guidelines come out, which could be May or June this year, um, because I think they will have quite a dramatic effect um, and uh, people um, should assume, as I read out from the guidance, that the ambient air quality, outdoor air quality standards guidelines um, are the basic standard inside unless there's other um, World Health Organization guidelines that um, uh, trump it. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a very uh, interesting and uh, um, uh, good way of looking at things. Certainly, as far as I'm concerned, I think the problems we face immediately at the moment are very much down to fine particles, PM1. Uh, that's where the problem lies. Cleaning air, uh, air cleaning technologies that are effective, 
uh, uh, tested um, and, as you say, backed up by uh, uh, standards that can be easily demonstrated and repeated. Um, Tobias, maybe I could bring you in to, to wrap it up, if you like, on that. Yeah, I'll try to make it quick, because I know we're <laughs> actually at yeah. the end of the time. Yeah. I really believe that this pandemic will at least short term bring more attention, attention to the indoor air quality question. But what we should always keep in mind that besides protecting us against pandemics or also the besides the negative effects that in that bad air quality has, but also improving the air quality is not only a preventive measure to protect us against diseases, which is critical for sure, but also improving it actually will help all of us in increased um, good well-being, in increased performance. So even if you're not actually in a situation where you are concerned by the air in terms of you, it will make you sick, still it's worth improving it because there is a positive side to it. Yeah, absolutely. So good air yeah. quality is... Is like healthy food or healthy drinks. We all think about what we eat. We all think about, is it healthy? But what do we breathe? Do we really think about that? How can that contribute to our well-being and performance? And there is enough scientific proof that it can. Enough of clean air is something that will improve your performance, that it will improve your well-being. And of course, it will protect your health. And that should be reason enough to keep that on the agenda. Great point. Thank, thank you very much, Tobias. I think that just about wraps it up for us today then. Thank you, everybody. And I think we've had a very good broad base of um, input here and hopefully thoughts for everybody listening. And thank you for everybody out there. Thank and you very much. much.